What is the hardest test of your faith that you've ever faced? Maybe you're in that test now. Maybe you've faced it recently. Perhaps it's it's a physical trial test. There are often difficulties, challenges we face. Sometimes those are physical trials dealing with pain or sickness or even disease. Perhaps you're dealing with a difficulty spiritually. And you're in a dry season. And spending time with the Lord, you have the desire, but just continue to feel like you're in a desert. Maybe you're in a place practically where you're stretched financially, have sleepless nights, laying on your pillow, trying to get to sleep, wondering how God is going to provide. Whatever that test is, whatever that difficulty or challenge may be, For those who trust in the Lord, we understand that while those difficulties are so often out of our control, we have confidence they are under God's control. Those challenges, they aren't too difficult for Him. What catches us off guard or by surprise never catches God off guard. We can sleep because He does not. He doesn't slumber. He does not stop working for his glory and for the good of his people. Well, the British Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon had this to say on how the Lord uses those tests to grow his people. Here's what he said. No stars gleam as brightly as those which glisten in the polar sky. No water tastes so sweet as that which springs amid the desert sand. And no faith is so precious is that which lives and triumphs through adversity. Tested faith brings experience. You would never have believed your own weakness had you not needed to pass through trials. And you would never have known God's strength had His strength not been needed to carry you through. Well, the book of Genesis, we see that Abraham, he faced lots of tests of his faith. And he He passed some of those tests, and we see fruit that he believed God, and he he failed some of those tests. We see his flaws. We see his failing to trust God and believe God on occasion. Well, today in Genesis chapter 22, we see Abraham faced the hardest test of his faith. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you want to use that Bible in front of you, take that right in front of you in the pew rack and turn to page 16. We're going to be in Genesis 22, that's on page 16, and if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you, that's our our gift to you this morning. I'm going to read through all of this chapter here as we begin our time. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. 
So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. After these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Didlat, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Mekah. We've spent this fall, past fall on the life of Abraham. This will be the last Sunday for about a month that we're in Genesis. We'll take a month and be in different passages for the coming month. But we spent the entire fall looking at the life of Abraham. We've seen him face many tests of his faith and Here in chapter 22, we see Abraham face his greatest test. Now consider that the the hardest test he faced came after him receiving the promised son. Sometimes we may have the wrong idea in the Christian life that as the Christian life goes on, it just gets easier and and easier. We grow in knowledge and we know God's word and, and we know what to believe and what to expect and life just gets easier. But that's not what we should expect looking at the scriptures. It's not what we see in the life of Abraham, he faced his hardest test after God was growing him in his faith and maturing him in his faith and and leading him away from relying on himself. At old age, he faced his hardest test. Now, for 25 years, Abraham had waited for this promised son, and finally he received this son. We looked at that last week in Genesis 21. And here in 22, God calls for a complete surrender. He called Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. This test, it would reveal just how much Abraham feared the Lord. 
Well, the main idea that I want you to see in this passage this morning is this. If we fear God, we must surrender everything to Him and trust Him to provide. If we fear God, we must surrender everything to Him and trust Him to provide. As we make our way through this entire chapter this morning, I want us to see three scenes of tested faith. Three scenes of tested faith, and the first scene we find in verses 1 through 10, persevering obedience. The first scene of tested faith in verses 1 through 10, persevering obedience. Chapter 22 begins with God testing Abraham, and Moses, the narrator of Genesis, lets us know right off the bat that this is a test. Now, a test generally involves some sort of difficulty, some sort of of hardship or or challenge. There's various kinds of tests, but we need to be clear that a test is different from temptation. Satan is the one who tempts. God does not tempt us, but God tests us. We know in the New Testament, the book of James, James makes it clear in chapter 1, verse 13, that God himself tempts no one. We regularly face trials in our life and difficulties and challenges that God uses as a, a test, but it's important for us to distinguish that tempting is done by an enemy, by Satan and his forces, to cause us to stumble and, and fall. Tempting is, is done with, with malice to achieve disapproval. But God, He doesn't tempt. He tests. He tests to uh, achieve approval, uh, to confirm. God tests His people to refine us and to, to reveal His work in us. It's often said throughout the story of the Old Testament that, that God often tested His people, the nation of Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, testing them through hunger and thirst to see if they would rely on Him in their trials. Now, you can liken testing, consider what teachers do. So, if you're a student right now, you're probably in exam period, you're facing some difficult tests. I know you may feel like it sometimes, like those teachers are out for you to fail, uh, but a good teacher is out to reveal the concepts that you've mastered, knowledge that you've come to learn and understand. That test is meant to reveal what you know. So, if you make a bad grade on the test, it means you really didn't understand the content taught in the course. You see, a good teacher is testing to reveal something good, or even in the the bad grades, revealing growth that needs to happen. You see, testing reveals knowledge, and when God tests the faith of His people, it reveals what our faith is really like. Well, here in chapter 22, we see that Abraham's commitment to God is being tested. His faith is being tested. How much does he believe God? How much does he truly believe? fear the Lord? Will he keep obeying? Will he keep fearing the Lord? How much is he willing to surrender to God? Well, it's helpful for our purposes as a reader to know right up front in verse 1, this was a test. It's also important to know that Abraham did not know that in the moment. He didn't receive the command and think, oh, this is just a test. Okay, good. Let me make sure I'm ready for this. Pop quiz. 
That's not what happened. He didn't know this was a test in the morning. He received a command from God. He heard that command, and he had a choice to either walk by faith and obedience or to be afraid and disobey God. This choice would reveal just how much he trusted God. This choice, it would reveal just how much he feared the Lord. Now, the details in verse 2 show us how difficult obedience would be. Notice the language there. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, Isaac was his only son, for he already sent his other son, Ishmael, away. We thought about that last week in Genesis chapter 21. That was another test when God called him to send Ishmael and Hagar away out into the wilderness and the desert. And Ishmael faced what seemed like a certain death in the desert, in the wilderness, by himself if it were not for the Lord. But Abraham passed that test. He trusted God to provide. And God not only provided water for them there, but he also gave a promise and provided for that promise that he would sustain Ishmael's life and indeed make a great nation out of him. Well, here God is calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, his, his only son, the son he, he loved. But also consider this was the son through whom God's covenant promises were made. God's plan to bless the nations was through Isaac. And now God's commanding Abraham to offer him as a burnt offering. This may be a, a bit confusing at first if you read this. I was talking to my wife this week about the passage, and I said, you know, I had the blessing of growing up with Christian parents. I heard this uh, story from such a young age in Sunday school and church. It, it's familiar to me. It's not shocking anymore. I'm kind of familiar with it, but how it ends. But I asked her, I said, imagine if you'd never heard this and you heard it for the first time. It might be a bit confusing at first, right? This command, it doesn't seem to line up with the character of God. The God of the Bible does not approve of child sacrifice. We see that explicitly condemned in other places in the scriptures, like in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. Typical burnt offerings were not boys, they were birds or sheep, maybe, maybe a, a bull, but not a boy. And it's also confusing because at first, you may consider how would Abraham's offspring multiply through Isaac if he died right there on the altar? It wasn't this God's plan to bless the nations through this son, Isaac. Well, the, the story may be a bit confusing at first. So it's helpful that Moses shows the reader immediately this is a test in verse 1, which, which leaves us with no doubt about God's good purpose in the story. Any tension you might feel as you read the story at first, it will be gloriously resolved as the story unfolds. And by the end of the story, there is comfort and there is assurance. So the main impression we should take from verse 2, this is an enormous demand. What more could God ask of Abraham? Any father would say, well, let me take the place of my son. I'll die in his place, right? He couldn't have asked anything more besides his only son to be sacrificed. This was a demand that required surrendering everything to God. Now, we don't see Abraham's response until the next morning. Talk about having a hard time to sleep. I mean, how could you sleep on that? Tylenol PM didn't exist back then. There weren't ways to get to, to sleep. There wasn't melatonin you could take to get to sleep back then. He's having to think, in the morning, God called me to do this. All the different scenarios could have been running through his head. But he went to sleep. He woke up the next morning. What do we see? Immediate obedience. Look at verse 3. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning. There was no delay in his obedience. Now contrast that with what we saw back in Genesis 19 with Abraham's nephew, Lot. He received word, get out of Sodom, God's going to destroy Sodom tomorrow morning. He woke up, there there was no sense of urgency, kind of dilly-dallied around. He wasn't ready to obey God. And the contrast here is that Abraham woke up, he was ready to immediately obey God. While the obedience was immediate, Abraham was still a few days away from the moment of sacrifice. In verse 4, we read there were two full days of travel. It wasn't until the third day that he arrived at God's chosen place there at Mount Moriah. Now, the significance of three days is that this is a typical period of preparation in the Bible for something important. Three days, a period of preparation for something important that God was going to do. Now, this waiting for three days, though, in Abraham's experience, it required perseverance. Would Abraham continue on the path of obedience. Immediately he responded with obedience, and it's important to initially have a response of obedience. But how many times do we find ourselves, brothers and sisters, immediately obeying God, but as time goes on, tempted to turn around, turn away from disobedience? Where do you find it difficult to persevere in obeying God? Sometimes you may think, well, I know God has said this in his word. I know he's told me that I must forgive and stand ready to forgive people. I know that, but I just don't feel like forgiving in the moment. I felt good with that yesterday, but I'm I'm upset today. How many times will you face temptation and turn away from it at first, but when that temptation keeps coming at you day after day, do you see perseverance in obedience? See, it's one thing to initially obey. It's altogether another thing to keep walking on the path of obedience. We'll read in verse 3 that not only did Abraham get up early in the morning and saddle the donkey and cut the wood, but for three days he did not turn back. He, he persevered on the path of obedience. His, his obedience in this test was consistent. He kept on obeying because he feared the Lord. Now we cannot overstate the importance of perseverance in the Christian life. You really can't. We really can't overstate the importance of, of persevering. If you came to know God like many of you did at a young age, or maybe in your teenage years, or maybe even in your 20s, what does it look like to still walk in faith in obedience in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s? Some of you here this morning in your, in your 80s, by God's grace, still growing and persevering. I had a conversation recently with someone and uh, an older saint, and, and one of the things she said was, you know, sometimes she can feel intimidated around Christians who seem to have such a clear articulation of theology. And she said sometimes she can feel insecure about her own faith, wondering, why can't I articulate theology like that? And I told her, I said, you know, it's, it's helpful to have a clear articulation of theology. There's nothing wrong with that. It's something good to strive for. We hope to equip people in that. But what good is a clear articulation of theology if you're not persevering and walking in faith and obedience. I had to tell her, you know, I've seen your life and I've seen you walk through trials and difficulties and you're in your 60s and you still love God. In your 60s, you still want to be in the Bible. You're in your 60s and you still want to get up and come to church. You've been through trials and by God's grace, you're not bitter at him. 
You're not distant from him. You don't feel he's distant from you. That is a powerful testimony. If you have a clear articulation and can, and can, can extol to others the wonders of theology that you've read in a book, I think that's great. But if it's not matched by obedience and perseverance, what kind of testimony is that? We should all pray for the testimony of God's grace and perseverance in obedience, and specifically and especially in obedience through difficulties and trials and challenge. What a powerful testimony of God's grace it is when we persevere in obedience. Well, Abraham, he trusted God, persevered in God's, he persevered by faith and obedience and God's grace. And in verse 5, we see a beautiful expression of his faith. He left the men that he was traveling with and told them, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's a statement of faith. I understand it to be a, a declaration of, of faith there. He moves forward in obedience to offer his only son Isaac as a burnt offering, and he believes that he will return there with Isaac. Uh, keep in mind, you and I as a reader know what's going to happen in this test. We, we know how this ends. We just read through it. Even if it's the first time you've heard this, we just read through it a moment ago. But Abraham didn't know. He didn't know what was going to happen. What he knew is that God commanded him to sacrifice his son. He didn't know how all of this was going to end, but he knew God. He didn't know how things would end up, but he knew that God is almighty. He knew that God is full of power and, and grace. And he trusted and feared the Lord, and he moved forward in obedience. Took the wood. That must have been hard to do. He placed it on his only son, Isaac as a burnt offering, and he believes they will return. He was over 100 years old at that point, the whole ordeal. He couldn't have carried the wood by himself. Isaac had grown up and perhaps was close to his teenage years. The whole ordeal, it required Isaac's participation, him following his father as his father walked by faith, which gives us a little preview of how the Lord would work through Isaac's faith later on in the story. Together, they both went up the mountain. Now remember from verse 2, this was a mountain in the land of Moriah. And there is significance in the detail given there about Mount Moriah. This is the place where the city of Jerusalem would eventually be built. We read later on in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, that Mount Moriah is the location where King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. You see, the nation of Israel could look back on, on this story and trace its history of worship of the one true God back to this moment when Abraham and Isaac went up this mountain to worship God. Well, a second declaration of faith that comes after Isaac asks his father in verse 7, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I mean, Isaac is looking around thinking, I've, I've carried the, the wood this whole way. Dad's got a knife in his hand. And he's got fire. What are we going to sacrifice here? And Abraham responds in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. His answer to Isaac is almost as if to say, I'm going to let God answer that. <laughs> I'll have an answer for you. I'm going to let God answer that. I don't know the answer, but, but God does. Again, Abraham didn't know exactly how God would provide, but he trusted that God would provide. And brother and sister in the Lord, isn't that how we often have to face our trials? We often want to know how God 
is going to provide, when God is going to provide, when the trial is going to be over. Perhaps we have something we're praying for that we think, man, this is a really great way for God to answer my need and this trial, but that may not be God's way or His chosen time. And I, I think the key to facing a test or a trial is what we see here in the life of Abraham. We need to know that we can't depend on understanding how God is going to provide or when God is going to provide. But brother and sister, we can bank our hope in the Lord. He will provide. We can know that He will provide. That's who He is. He's a provider. He's always shown Himself to be a provider. That's what God does. He doesn't deliver too late. His provision never disappoints. We may think we know a better way or a better timing, but it's never better than God's. That's why when we pray, and we talked about this before, that the answer we can receive from the Lord in our prayers is yes, no, or wait. And even in the no's that we receive, ultimately that's a yes, because God has a better answer than we could ever come up with on our own. It's how we trust the Lord to provide. Well, this could have been a time where Either one, Abraham or Isaac, might have taken off and been tempted to turn around, but they went together and continued up the mountain. Abraham built the altar, he laid the wood down, he bound Isaac and laid him, his only son, the son he loved, on top of the altar. He was uncertain how God would provide, but he was certain that God would provide. Abraham did not lock in on his present circumstances, rather he locked in on God's certain promise. God had promised him, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Isaac was the one that God chose, through whom God would make Abraham a father of a multitude of nations. God promised this, and Abraham's actions of obedience and statements of faith came from a conviction that God will indeed provide. Again, it's important to note that Abraham, he was not expecting God to stop him from sacrificing his only son. We can gather that in the moment, Abraham expected his son was going to die, die by him at his hands as he obeyed God's word. Well, well how would he move forward with that understanding? How could he move Forward. Even as a good father, how could you move forward in that moment? Well, the, again, this is where Scripture helps us interpret and understand Scripture. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, gives us some insight into what was going on in Abraham's mind in that moment. In verse 17 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The Bible is sufficient to help us understand more of what was going on there. Abraham believed God's promise, that God would give him a family through his son Isaac, God had promised a future for Isaac, so certainly there must be a future for Isaac. Abraham reasoned, if this knife kills my son, God will raise him from the dead. There's nothing too difficult 
for the Lord. Death is not too difficult for the Lord. God will raise him from the dead. Now, you and I know the story does not end that way. God provided another way, but the writer of Hebrews helps us understand that Abraham believed God's power. God has power over life and death. Abraham feared God rather than fearing death. I mentioned earlier the significance of this location of of Mount Moriah. So it would become the location of the temple there in Jerusalem where the people of God and the nation of Israel would worship God. This also became the area that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was crucified in. In this exact area, God would provide for himself the Lamb, a substitutionary sacrifice, a Lamb that would stand in the place of his people to take the penalty and punishment as a sacrifice for sin. You see, the sacrifice of Isaac points us to consider the greatest sacrifice. When God did not spare his own son, Jesus, at the cross, God provided for himself the lamb, the spotless lamb of God. In the New Testament, we read this this morning, early on in our scripture reading, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. The Apostle Paul pointed back to Genesis chapter 22, there in Romans 8, 32. When he, when he used that word in verse 32, spare, he was looking back to the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. He looked at Abraham's example of not sparing his only son. And he taught that if, if God did not spare his own son, then we can trust he will provide all things that we need. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us and for our salvation. At the cross, God provided for himself a lamb. God provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be made right with him. Jesus willingly came and laid his life down as a sacrifice, as a substitute to stand in our place, the innocent standing in the place of the condemned, fully taking our punishment upon his shoulders. And just like Abraham reasoned that God has power over death, God raised Jesus from the dead. You see, three days, we consider it's a period of preparation for something important, And on which day? The third day, Jesus got up from the dead. Something incredibly important being prepared there in that tomb. Jesus was dead. He was buried. Physical death, but he came back to life, resurrected from the dead, proving he is who he said he was. The Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the one in whom salvation and forgiveness of sins is found, the only one in whom there is salvation before a holy God. Three days later, he rose from the dead, bringing you the most important gift you could ever receive, bringing the provision you couldn't possibly provide for yourself, bringing the provision you must know in this life, you must receive before you enter into this next life, the provision of a life with God in this life and in the next, the provision of being made right with God and united to him through faith in Jesus Christ. 
You see, Jesus, the spotless lamb, he stood in the place of anyone who would turn and put their faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, what's stopping you from doing that today? As a church, we would implore you, don't let this Christmas season just be another time where you become more and more familiar with this story about Jesus, but you don't have faith in Jesus. You haven't trusted in Him. You haven't turned to His perfect sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Come and see one of us afterwards at the doors or top of the ramp or anyone sitting next to you as a member of our church who brought you this morning. Talk with them. What is it that would keep you from trusting in Jesus today? Well, for those who are in Christ, we find great comfort in Jesus laying down His life as the Lamb of God. We understand that in Christ we have received the greatest provision, a a relationship with God, life with God in this life and in the next. And we can face our future and even our present trial with hope and confidence in Him. Well, I want us to consider a second scene of tested faith there in verses 11 through 14. Provision received. It's a second test, a second scene of tested faith. Provision received. When obedience to God, Abraham was, was standing with a knife in his hand, getting ready to slaughter his only son. There was only one thing that would stop him, the Lord himself. That's what happened. Verse 11, we see the angel of the Lord stopping him. Just like in chapter 16 with Hagar, the, the angel of the Lord, this is God appearing. Typically an appearance of the angel of the Lord in Scripture is God himself appearing to deliver good news. This was a divine intervention here in verse 11, a divine intervention from heaven when the angel of the Lord cried out, Abraham, Abraham. When God called out to Abraham in verse 1, his name was only given, called out just one time. Here in verse 11, his name is called out twice, emphasizing the urgency. The angel of the Lord intervenes, and there are, are new instructions. No longer is Abraham to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And verse 12, Abraham is directed to not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Now, I understand this is the moment when Abraham became aware that this was a test. For we read, the Lord said, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Again, we've talked about how to read language like this before in Genesis. Moses certainly is not suggesting that somehow God was unaware of what was in Abraham's heart. God knows everything. He knew what was in Abraham's heart. He knew what was going to happen there in the moment and in the future. Rather, this is a way of saying that the fear of God was made clear in the life of Abraham at that moment. Through that test, Abraham's faith and his fear of the Lord was seen more clearly than it ever had been before. By enduring the hardest test he ever faced, it revealed that Abraham truly feared God. He did not fear losing his son. He did not fear the future. He feared God. Now, to fear God, it's a common phrase throughout the Old Testament. And it has to do with honoring God and and worship. Fearing God has to do with living an upright life. 
I've heard it described, the fear of God is a reverence for God that produces obedience and worship. And not sparing his own son, Abraham showed that he feared God above all else and that he was willing to sacrifice at great cost to obey God. The test was over. And now God's provisions revealed. The angel of the Lord spoke, and immediately we see in verse 13 that Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw what God provided, a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham believed that God would provide for himself the lamb, and here was the animal that God prepared as a sacrifice to take the place of Isaac. Abraham learned then what we quickly knew as the reader. It was never God's intention to sacrifice Isaac. Again, I think this is another place where the nation of Israel would look and see that that human sacrifice is not something that God would approve of. Rather, we'd see here that God provides everything that He requires. He required a sacrifice, and God Himself provided that sacrifice. Now, in any sacrifice, the animal symbolically represented the person that the sacrifice is being offered for. So here, the, the ram takes Isaac's place on the altar. So there would indeed be a a sacrifice that day. It just wouldn't be Isaac. God spared Isaac's life by providing the ram. The ram died and Isaac can live. The ram died and Isaac can live and go on to become, by God's blessing, a mighty nation. The ram died and Isaac can go on through whom God had promised he'd be a blessing to all the nations. And the original audience, the nation of Israel, hearing the story, they would realize they too existed because of that ram. They came from Abraham and Isaac. Were it not for God providing that ram, there would be no Moses. There would be no story of Genesis. They wouldn't be there in the wilderness waiting for God. There would be nothing. They existed because of God's grace in providing that ram. Now, this ram standing in the place of Isaac, it kind of looked forward in in redemptive history. Now, immediately, I think it looked forward to the Passover. When God freed His people from slavery in the land of of Egypt, He saved them from His judgment and His wrath by the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood that was painted over the doorposts of a home would cause God's judgment to pass over that house. And who was spared in that house? The firstborn son firstborn son, the only son, Isaac, the the son that God chose to bless the nations through, spared here at Mount Moriah, would be seen in the Passover lamb, the blood of this ram saved Isaac, and it was the blood of the Passover lamb that saved the firstborn there amongst God's people in Egypt. This ram was a tremendous provision at just the right time, and in verse 14, Abraham commemorated the moment by naming that place the Lord will provide. It really became kind of a motto of Abraham's life. Perhaps you have found yourself saying that phrase, you face a trial, you face a challenge, and you say to someone else, well, the Lord will provide, or you say to yourself, the Lord will provide. Well, this is where it came from. It's where this phrase came from. It came from this moment. It came from Abraham. You see, this is our history, if indeed we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the central message of this passage, that this name, it points back to what Abraham declared in verse 8, God will provide for Himself. And the naming of this place was an act of thanksgiving that celebrated God's marvelous provision in that moment. Naming the place the Lord will provide was a monument 
of God's provision for future generations in Israel to remember as they gathered on that very mountain for worship, that they would again and again be reminded of how richly the Lord provides for His people. Now, ultimately, this sacrifice looks forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. The story of Abraham and Isaac foreshadows another substitutionary death that came hundreds and hundreds of years later. Abram was willing to not spare his only son, was willing to not spare his only son, but rather he was spared from having to sacrifice Isaac. And one of the most familiar Bible verses in all of Scripture, we read that God sacrificed his only son. It's a very familiar verse. You often see this reference up at football games on a poster behind a goal post when a field goal or extra point is being kicked. John 3.16. It's one of those verses, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might be so familiar with, don't miss out on the glory revealed in this familiar passage. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The glory of John 3.16 is that for those who have repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross has paid the penalty for our sin. We don't have to perish. We've received God's gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus stood in our place. God gave His only Son for us. And for those who are in Christ, our confidence is this. Our greatest need has already been provided for. And therefore, we can trust God to provide everything else that we need. Whatever trial or challenge we're facing right now, it likely feels really big to us. It feels overwhelming to us. It feels like such a big thing. But to God, I think it's really a small thing. He's already provided the greatest thing. That's the logic of Romans chapter 8, 32. He's already provided the greatest thing. Every other need that we have, How much smaller is it in comparison to what God's done in sending and providing His only Son, Jesus Christ, for us? Well, brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder, what do you presently need to trust that the Lord will provide? What are you anxious about? What are you burdened by? Where do you need to trust that God will provide? We need to repent when we question God's provision. Of course God will provide. How foolish, how wrong of us to question God's goodness and His provision. A provider is who He is. And may it be the motto of our lives as we trust Christ. The Lord has provided. The Lord is providing. Indeed, the Lord will provide. The third and final scene we see in this passage, verses 15 through 24, promises assured. Promises assured there in verses 15 through 24. But the test having been completed, the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven a second time in verse 16. And we see the Lord swearing an oath there. For the first time in the Bible and the only time in Genesis, the Lord swears an oath. Now what, and by his own name. Now what God had promised to Abraham long before Isaac was born is repeated, but now it's given in the form of an oath where God swore by himself. Look at verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. This is the last time that we see God speak to Abraham. This oath comes as one final guarantee from God that all that He promised Abraham would indeed come to pass. And there is no greater guarantee that God can give than by swearing by Himself. These promises in verses 16 through 18, they're not new. But here, after Abraham's faith was revealed in his greatest test, the Lord repeats these promises with an even greater clarity and boldness. So back in chapter 15, verse 5, we we read that the Lord had promised Abraham that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Here in verse 17, the Lord adds to that description that his offspring would be multiplied more than the sand that is on the seashore. He's just giving more comfort, more assurance. Back in chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's offspring. He, He showed Abraham the land that he would give him. Here at the end of verse 17, the Lord adds to that, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, meaning that his descendants would be conquerors and would victoriously take this land by God's power and might from the Canaanites. He was assuring and comforting Abraham. And in verse 18, we see the guarantee, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This act of faith and obedience in Abraham's hardest test was the moment that God used to finally assure Abraham that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, through Isaac. And don't miss the end of verse 18. All of this would happen, why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham obeyed God. He passed the test. God would see to him himself that his promises would come to pass, but he would do that through Abraham's obedience. And after obeying and passing the test, God blessed him and assured him of his promises. And just like Abraham said he would, he and Isaac returned to his young men, and they went back home to Beersheba. The chapter closes out, verses 20 through 24, with a list of descendants of Abraham's brother Nahor. Now, the significant name mentioned there in verse 23 that stands out, that kind of moves the story forward here, is Rebekah. Rebekah would go on to become Isaac's wife. And we get a little glimpse here into the future of what God had for Isaac, right at the end of verse 22. God had a future for Isaac. He had a plan to bless the nations through Isaac, a plan that Abraham was assured of as he passed God's test for him. Well, brother and sister, I leave you with a question that we asked at the beginning of the sermon. I wonder how your faith in God is presently being tested. I wonder what trial you may face in the coming weeks. We talked last week that we often wait for our circumstances to get better, but let's remember how that went, 2021. We thought 2020 is over, and then came 2021. It's a good year, lots to thank God for, but it's been a hard year. 2022, we're not promised it's going to be any easier. Who knows what new variant's going to pop up, what new challenge you'll face. What a challenge our church will face. We don't know. Our hope isn't in circumstances being favorable, seemingly for us, or difficult. Our faith and hope is in God, the one who will provide for his people. 
brother and sister, whatever trial we're facing now, whatever trial we may face in the coming weeks or months or years, whatever the trial is, may by God's grace we persevere in asking the Lord for strength to stay on the path of obedience, strength to keep surrendering to His Word. May we trust the Lord to provide, that's who He is, May we be reminded that we will never be disappointed with God's provision. And by God's grace, may we look to His promises in Christ to find comfort and assurance that God will surely do what He said He will do. Remembering that, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, we ask that now as we come to the Lord's table that you would nourish us and strengthen our faith, that you would remind us of the greatest sacrifice that you've already provided in your son, Jesus, his blood shed for us, his body given for us. What more do we need than what you've already provided? And so, Lord, in whatever we face this morning, whatever's got us anxious, whatever's got our soul troubled, Lord, may we come and submit that to you. May we surrender everything to you and trust that you will provide for every one of our needs. And may we remember that now as we look to your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.